Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 5. We'll be looking at the entirety of the chapter. So let me read chapter 5 for us, and then we will take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help as we do every week as we approach this word together. So 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray together. Father, as we've already said this morning, what a privilege it is to be here together as your people. Father, we just want to proclaim once more our worship of Jesus Christ, our thankfulness for his life, his death, and his resurrection that stands in our place. We are thankful that because of the complete work of Christ, we are a redeemed people gathered together. Because of his work, you have graciously sent your spirit to dwell in us. You have spoken to us through your word and By the power of your spirit, you have awakened us to see the glories of who you are on the pages of scripture. And so, Father, once again, as we go through 1 Samuel chapter 5, once again, we ask that you would help us to see more of who you are, that you would convict us of sin and where we have failed to to make you our one and only God, where we have failed to worship you as you deserve and instead have filled our lives with idols and false gods. Father, I pray this morning that we would exalt you and lift you up and make much of your holy name, that we would see your sovereign hand at work and that it would increase our confidence in who you are. So Father, I pray that you would guide my words this morning. Father, as I pray every week, I plead with you once more that you would allow me to speak only what is true of you, 
that we would pursue truth together through your word and that no one in this room would be led astray this morning, but instead we pray that you would lead us to see your glory and the glories of Christ on display. And so we pray all of this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I think all of us have been in situations where we've been in maybe a small group of people and they begin making conversation and telling people about exciting stories from their past. And inevitably, for being honest, right, we all, we, we're in church, right? We need to be honest. We all have a back pocket story that we want to pull out in situations like that, right? Well, that happened to you, but listen to what happened to me. So here's mine. Here's my back pocket story. If you tell me about traveling somewhere, I'm going to pull out my Grand Canyon story. My kids are tired of hearing about it. You all have probably heard about it. Seventh grade, I'm with our church group. We had gone to a Christian camp for a week. We took an extra day to swing out to the Grand Canyon before we take the long bus ride home back to South Carolina. We're excited. We're getting to see the Grand Canyon, my first and only time being at the Grand Canyon. And we got to spend a total of about 30 to 40 minutes at the Grand Canyon because there was an escaped murderer in Grand Canyon National Park. We had to go through roadblocks on the way in where the National Guard or whoever they were comes on with like these big rifles or guns, whatever, searching our bus. They had to search underneath the luggage compartments. They handed out wanted posters, uh, all this kind of stuff. We had to go through even more roadblocks on the way out because they thought maybe he was hiding in buses or in luggage compartments. So I've told that story a ton. By the way, before I mentioned that today, I was like, am I crazy? Did that really happen? So I, I Googled it and there's news stories about this guy. And now my story gets better because I didn't know how dangerous he actually was. He had taken people hostage, tourists hostage in Grand Canyon National Park, was on the run for like seven weeks. I had no idea that it was that bad. Like we literally could have been taken hostage as a bus. Praise the Lord. It didn't happen. But that's my story, right? I'm going to, I'm going to pull that story out and say, well, check this one out. And you probably have a story that's better than that one, right? Well, I just imagine one day in the new heavens and the new earth, The saints we read about in the Old Testament are going to be sitting around telling stories. And Gideon has a really good story, right? We talk about Gideon's story a lot, right? Gideon is told he needs to go and wipe out the Midianites. And he's like, all right, let's go. And he's trusting God. And he gathers up 32,000 men to go wipe out the Midianites. But Gideon's telling his other, you know, saints there. But but man, God said, no, that's too many, Gideon. That's too many to take out the Midianites. I need it to be less people. And so he says, anybody who's afraid can go home. And so 22,000 people go home and Gideon is only left with 10,000 people to fight against an army that God describes as as numerous as the sands on the seashore, camels without number, right? A huge army. And he's down to 10,000 people. And God says to Gideon, yeah, that's still, that's still too many. If you go fight with that many, you're going to boast in your own ability. You're going to be prideful about it. And Gideon's going to sit around and saying, listen to what God did next. He took those 10,000 people and said, I want you to go down and and have those 10,000 gather around this body of water and how they drink the water is going to determine who gets to go with you to battle and who doesn't. And only 300 men did it the way that narrowed them down. So I, y'all, I was left with 300 men to fight against an army as numerous as the sands on the seashore and God wiped them out with those 300 men. Isn't that amazing? And then I think Samuel's going to say, Cool story, Gideon. Check this one out. 300 men, that's cute. God did it with no men in my day. When the Philistines took the ark back, he didn't need one single soldier to take out the Philistines. First Samuel 
chapter 5 is meant to be a display of God's glory for us to behold. It is meant to display the glory and magnificence and sovereignty of God. It's chapters like this, like 1 Samuel chapter 5, that so clearly demonstrate God's sovereignty, his power over all nations, that he is not a tribal deity. He is the supreme creator, king, and sovereign ruler of every single inch of the universe, every kingdom, every tribe, every city, every village on planet earth belong to him. They are his. He is sovereign over them. And so in this chapter, we're going to see that glory of God on display, demonstrating that he is the one and only God and that he is the one and only judge of all the earth. That's our outline this morning. That's it. God is the one and only God, and God is the one and only judge. That's what the author of 1 Samuel wants us to see in 1 Samuel chapter 5 this morning. So let's begin with that first point. He is the one and only God. Look there with me at chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now let's just pause for a moment and be sure we understand what got us to this place. Why in the world do the Philistines have the ark of God in the first place? So if you haven't been here or may not be familiar with 1 Samuel, what's been happening up to this point is we've learned about these rebellious priests, the rebellious leaders of Israel in this day. The essentially high priest Eli is serving and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are priests serving at the house of God, at, at the tabernacle, at the tent of meeting. And these two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are wicked and terrible men. They are supposed to be priests representing God, handling the sacrifices of God's people as they present them before the Holy Lord. And instead, Hophni and Phinehas are forcibly taking sacrifices from people to feed themselves. Day after day, week after week, year after year, Samuel tells us this went on. And their father, Eli, did nothing about it. In fact, it let the, Samuel lets us know that he sat at the table with them and ate of their stolen goods. He was a full guilty participant in what they were doing. And then, of course, as if that wasn't bad enough, we're also told that Hophni and Phinehas were laying with women serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. These were terrible and wicked people. They had made a mockery of worship and of the sacrificial system. They did what the end of Judges tells us about this group of people. They did what was right in their own eyes. And so in chapters 2 and 3, God sends a man of God to tell Eli that his wrath is coming. He's going to take out Eli's sons by the sword of men, that the the house of Eli will come to an end. Chapter 3, through this little boy, this young boy, Samuel, God brings his word to Eli and says, that day is coming. I'm going to take out your sons. Your house is coming to an end. And so we're told exactly what's going to happen. And this is really important that God tells us this in chapters 2 and 3, so that in chapter 4, when the Philistines wipe out the Israelites, we know why that happened. It's not because the Philistines were better or more holy or anything like that. It was because they were God's instrument of wrath against his people. 
And the Israelites in their panic in chapter 4 think that if they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp, that somehow they will force God's hand to bring them victory, regardless of the status of their hearts, regardless of whether they're worshiping God rightly or not. They just bring this rabbit's foot, this good luck charm into the camp, thinking it's going to lead them to victory because God has guaranteed his promise will be with the Ark of God. And of course, that's not what happens. They lose the battle. 30,000 men of Israel are slaughtered. It says it was a very great slaughter. The Philistines capture the ark, take it back. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed. And when Eli learns about what happened to the ark, he falls over and essentially breaks his neck and dies as an exercise of God's wrath against him. And so, chapter 5, verse 1, the Philistines captured the ark of God. They have it with them. They have taken it from Ebenezer, the place of the city of God's people, to Ashdod, a city of the Philistines. But here's where it gets really interesting. It's what they do with the ark that is fascinating. You see, the Philistines, as with almost every other people group, every other culture of that day, believed that the gods were essentially tribal deities, that there was a god of the Philistines, there was a god of the Israelites, there's a god of a geographic area or a god of a certain people. So when one group defeated another group, they just kind of adopted that God, brought it in because, hey, here's another God that can be on our side. And so when one group defeated another group, it was seen as their God defeating that people's God. So the Philistines saw that as Dagon defeating the God of Israel. So they brought the Ark of the Covenant, which in their minds was God. It's the presence of God. And they put it in the house of Dagon beside their statue of Dagon, the God that they worship. See, in their minds, they're like, okay, now we've got another God on our side. And they remember in chapter four, they talked about what they had heard this God had done. They knew about what he did to the Egyptians. And so they're probably excited to now have defeated this God, to have reigned him in and to put him in the house of their gods, but specifically the house of their supreme God, Dagon. So that's, that's what they're doing when they place the ark beside Dagon, when they bring it into the house of Dagon, they were bringing the power of another tribal deity into their land. But of course, when we read on into verse 3, we see what happens the next day. You see that there in chapter 5, verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now there are two important key words in that first sentence of verse 3. The statue of Dagon fell how? Face down in a position of humility and worship. But not only face down, what else does it say? It fell face down before the ark of God. Their God is on the ground prostrate, face down, worshiping, essentially, right? Looking as if he is worshiping the God of Israel. This wasn't by chance. This wasn't coincidence. God caused the statue to fall so that it would be seen in the position of bowing down before the ark of God. Now, why did God do this? Well, what does verse 2 say that they did? Let's, let's go back to verse 2. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. When they did that, they were saying, God of Israel, creator, sovereign king of all the earth, creator of everything that there is, you are equal to this God, Dagon, which of course we know to be a false God. And it reminds me, of course, of the first commandment. What is the first commandment that God gives us in the Ten Commandments? 
you shall have no other gods beside me. What a powerful image of what God is talking about. Don't you dare put another God on my level. Even though there are false gods, there are no actual gods, don't you dare put an idol next to me. Worship nothing beside me. Do not put anything on my level. And God himself stands for his holiness. God himself will have no other God beside him. And so he calls us the statue of Dagon to collapse on the ground before him. Nothing is his equal. And in the end, he will not allow any God, so-called God, to be placed beside him. This is just one small glimpse of eternity. That day when every single false God will fall down and crumble before him. There will be no God seen as equal to him. But of course, what's staggering is the Philistines walk in and they don't repent. They don't fall on the ground beside their God and worship the God of Israel. Now, what do they do? What does it say that they do at the end of verse 3? They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Do you, do you see the overwhelming absurdity of that? We're going to walk in and our God needs some help. And we're going to pick him up and put him back. Our God. We're going to put our God back where he goes because he couldn't get there himself. The blindness of the eyes of man and the hardness of the human heart are on display in their actions of picking up this God and putting him back on the wall instead of falling down before the God of Israel. There is no, there is no more clear example of the darkness of the human heart than the worship of idols. Isaiah chapter 44 spends a lot of time essentially mocking people who cut down a tree cut it in half, take part of it and start a fire and cook over it. And then they take the other part of the tree that they physically cut down and they craft it into a shape of a person, set it up on a pedestal and fall down and worship it. And then the conclusion, toward the end of that section of Isaiah 44, this is what it says, Isaiah 44, verses 18 to 20. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, the temptation is to look with superiority over the Philistines and say, how foolish could they be? How foolish are they? Like, I, I would never be as foolish as they are. But never forget, brothers and sisters, if not for the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart, to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and to open your blind eyes, you would be falling down before idols as well. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now listen to this. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were in the same boat as the Philistines until God came and rescued you through the power of Jesus, through the coming of the Holy Spirit into your heart. And remember, if not for the grace of God, so go we. Now, their rescue mission of Dagon failed, right? They're, they're trying to rescue their God. They pick him up. They put him back. But what is it that happens the very next day? 
Verse 4, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now picture this with me. The first day, the statue fell down in one piece. This day, it doesn't say it fell down and was shattered. It doesn't say it fell down and the head and arms were broken. No, what does it say? It says the heads and the arms were cut off clean cut. And not only that, they are laying on the threshold of the house of Dagon, intentionally placed there by God, showing his victory over this so-called God of the Philistines. And this is significant because it was a common practice to show victory over one's enemies by cutting off their head and even cutting off their hands. And I'm not trying to be gruesome this morning, but the Bible is sometimes graphic. Right? And this happens even in First and Second Samuel. When David defeats Goliath, he slings the stone, hits him in the head, and kills him. Goliath is off Goliath's sword. What does David do to Goliath? He takes Goliath's sword and he cuts off his head to proclaim his victory over Goliath and his victory over the Philistines. Later on in Second Samuel, David will defeat his enemies. He will kill them. They are dead. And he cuts off their hands and their feet. Again, not to be gruesome, but it is to say this was the cultural practice. A way of showing your victory was to do this. And here is God intentionally cutting off the head and cutting off the hands of Dagon and laying them on the threshold of the house of Dagon to show that he is the victorious one, that this God is helpless before the one true God, that God needs no one to set him back up. He needs no army to bring him victory. He is the victorious one in his own right, by his own power. But yet the Philistines remain blind to his glory. And even then, instead of falling down and worshiping this powerful God, they want to honor the threshold where the cut off head and hands of Dagon fell were placed. And so it says, you see that in verse five, to this day, they, they don't tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day, to the day of the writing of Samuel. They still refuse to step on it because it was holy ground, because the cut off head and cut off hands of their defeated God was on the threshold. They are blind to the glories of God. But what verses 1 through 5 show us is that God will have no competitors. He is the one and only God. And what I want to remind you of this morning is just as he worked to make himself the one and only God in the house of Dagon, he is at work to be the one and only God in the shrine of your heart. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a, quote, perpetual factory of idols. We constantly are putting idols up on the shelf of our shrine next to the one and only God. They may not be carved idols, but we do it every day almost of our lives. When we're tempted to seek comfort through something like substance abuse, we're placing an idol on the shelf because we're looking to it instead of the God of all comforts. When we find peace in political outcomes, instead of the sovereign reign of King Jesus, we put politics, the idol of politics on the shelf next to the one and only God. When we fail to speak of Jesus to our neighbor, we place the idol of fear of man on the shelf of the shrine of our heart next to the one and only God instead of trusting in our sovereign God. When we covet what our neighbors have, 
We place the idol of materialism on the shelf right beside God instead of worshiping the God who has promised to provide for us. When we are filled with worry and anxiety, we place the idol of hope in man on the shelf instead of trusting in the God who promises all things are working for our good. I could go on and on about the idols I put in my own heart. But here's the good news. Here's the really, really good news. When God, by his grace to you and me, sent his spirit to dwell in us, to dwell in all who trust in the glorious work of Christ, he awakened us and opened our eyes to see the vanity of these false idols. Right? We don't have to fall fate to what the Philistines fell to, right? We don't have to be deceived by this false God and have the inability to see the glory of God on display. No, no, by the grace of God, we're finally able to begin smashing the idols of our heart to the ground while the world around us bows down to them. And by God's grace, by God's grace, he graciously will tear down the idols that we refuse to. And one of the main ways he does that is through suffering. It's why the Bible speaks of suffering as a gift of God to us. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let's just pause there. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or 2 Corinthians four seventeen. For this light, momentary affliction, Paul's there in that context when Paul is speaking of light, momentary affliction. This is a man who was beaten to the point of death, stoned, drug out of the city, people thinking him to be dead, suffered exposure and shipwreck. And he says this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So how is it that suffering, this momentary affliction, prepares us for an eternal weight of glory? Why is it that we should count it joy when we meet trials and when we suffer? Why? Because it's God's way of tearing down your idols and smashing them to the ground. Because otherwise, we would continue to worship at their feet. And by God's grace, sanctification is the process of the pile of rubble of broken down gods increasing around our feet until he is the one and only God remaining. We are commanded to have no gods beside him, and he will have no gods beside him. And it is a gift of grace to us that he helps us destroy our idols. But because he is the one and only God, he is also the one and only judge. He is the one and only judge. Look there with me, beginning in verse 6 through verse 12. Verse 6 says that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, namely the Philistines who lived in Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, first, just notice with me here, it says the hand of the Lord was very he was heavy against the people of Ashdod. That phrase will be repeated. The hand of the Lord was against Gath. The hand of the Lord was against Ekron. And the contrast could not be more clear. While Dagon is laying on the ground with his hands cut off, the hand of God is going against the people of the Philistines, against the people of Ashdod, the people of Gath, and the people of Ekron. He is bringing judgment to the land of the Philistines by causing tumors to break out among them. And he does it in every single city that take the ark. Now, I know that presents some questions, right? We have all this speculation. What in the world were these tumors? How did this work? And the most simple answer is we don't really know with 
any sense of accuracy exactly what these tumors were. There's all kinds of speculation about what they may have been. Some people speculate maybe it was some form of the bubonic plague because mice are mentioned in later in chapter 6, having been among the Philistines and and the plague can cause growths to form on people. But whatever it was, they were tumors that seemed to grow externally. They, they were not internal and with the inability to see them. They were some kind of growths on their body that were happening because later we're told that they make golden tumors to send back with the ark. So the, the, God calls these growths to occur on the people. And it happened in every single city, right? I want us to get a full sense of uh, verses 6 through 12, just kind of in summary format to remind you this happened in Ashdod. The tumors broke out. The people were despairing. They said, what should we do? They gathered the Lord of the Philistines. They say, well, let's send it to Gath. I don't know what the people of Gath did to the Lord of the Philistines. <laughs> we don't know why they decide on Gath. We have no idea why they choose Gath, but they send it to Gath. And sure enough, God does the same thing. Tumors break out on the people. The people of Gath say, you've got to get this thing out of here. They send it to Ekron. It arrives in Ekron. They say, why are you bringing the ark to us to kill us? Which, by the way, it's not explicitly stated, but it is implied in verse 12 that this wasn't just an outbreak of tumors. God also was bringing death to the Philistines. Do you see that in verse 12? The men who did not die were struck with tumors. So there's two categories of people. There are those who are struck with tumors, and there are other people who died, who God took their life. That group did not die because of the tumors. The tumors were given to the group that didn't die. This is God's wrath against the Philistine people from city to city, from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. In every city, it says the hand of the Lord was against them. Now, this is really important for us to see in this passage because in chapter 4, Samuel showed us that God used the wicked, idle, false God-worshipping Philistines to bring his judgment against Israel. Now, how in the world is it just to use an idol-worshipping, evil, wicked Philistine people to judge his people for doing the exact thing that the Philistines are doing? It's what God did. He used a wicked group of Philistines to bring his judgment against Israel. God's people. Well, it only makes sense if God then also brings judgment against those who carry out his wrath. This is where we must have a high view of God's sovereignty and a high view of the reality that God is the one and only judge of all peoples. All peoples are accountable to him. We see this happen with the Babylonians when God uses the Babylonians and brings them in to wipe out the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, and to take them into exile. They came by God's doing to bring his wrath against the people of Judah, against the southern kingdom of Israel. God wanted the Babylonians to take them out and to take them in to exile. He raised up the Babylonians so that he could send his people in to exile. But after he did so, he brought judgment against the Babylonians because their going in to take out Israel was not from a righteous motive. They were evil and a wicked people, and they were rebellious, and they simply wanted to wipe out God's people. That was their desire. And so Isaiah 47, 3 through 6 says this, I will take vengeance. This is God speaking. 
and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. For you will no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. And then verse 14 says of the Babylonians, Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. God will hold all peoples accountable. He will judge all people. And even though the Philistines fulfilled his purposes, they did not honor God in fulfilling his purposes. They simply wanted to kill and destroy and ravage the Israelites. And therefore, even though God allowed them to do so as an exercise and execution of his wrath against his people, he then turns and brings his wrath against the Philistines by causing tumors to break out on them and killing them. The reach of the judgment of God has no boundaries. God's judgment does not stop at the borders of Israel. He is the judge of all the earth. We saw this in Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Or Psalm 94, 2, rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. You see what the author of Samuel is displaying here as the ark moves from one city to another, almost as a victory march through the land of the Philistines. In every city, God is judged, bringing his wrath and condemnation against the Philistine people. He is the judge of all the earth, of all nations, and all peoples. They will all answer to him just as the Philistines are having to answer to him. And of course, his judgment extends beyond even just the nations, right? God declared that he would also hold Satan and his demons and the fallen angels accountable. In Genesis chapter 3, he warned them that one day through the seed of the woman, through the seed of Eve, he would crush the head of Satan. Right? This is so important to remember, especially right as we come along to Halloween and there's all these terrible images that we can see at times. And sometimes we see representations of Satan and we see him like ruling over hell. Hell is not Satan's domain. It's not his kingdom. It is his place of eternal torment. God will judge him. He is sovereign over him. Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God is the one and only judge. He will judge all peoples. He will judge all fallen angels. He will judge Satan himself. There is no place to escape his judgment. There is no nation we can run to and claim asylum from the judgment of God. There's no place we can go and say, you have no jurisdiction here. There is no place we can hide from his sovereign judgment. All tongues, all tribes, all nations, and all peoples will one day face the judgment of God. But of course, the Bible always gives us good news. And just as God cut off the head of Dagon, he has also crushed the head of Satan. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin through his cross when Jesus came in the flesh and willingly lived among us righteously, never once failing his father and willingly gave up his life on the cross to die in the place of all who would trust in him and take their sins on himself, take the wrath of God in our place so that we could have 
life forevermore. It is through faith in the finished work of Christ that we can be rescued from the judgment of God that we all deserve. This is the glorious good news that we are reminded of. We are rescued from condemnation, not by running someplace else. There is nowhere you can run, but instead by running to the arms of Jesus that are waiting for all who come to him in faith. And the really good news is that he is judge of all nations, but he has also declared Jesus to be the savior of all nations. All peoples, every tribe and tongue will be represented around the throne room of Jesus in the last day. Therefore, we are called to go into the world proclaiming that he is the king of all nations, proclaiming that King Jesus reigns supreme, and it is to him that we must give an account. Every nation, not just Israel, not just America, right? We're just one more nation of many. All of us will bow before King Jesus either willingly or we will be forced to take the knee and face his wrath and condemnation. But it is through the rescue of the cross that with full confidence we can go to the nations, not having to worry for one moment that some God we're going to find is going to be more powerful than our God. Right? We don't have to go worrying about some tribal deity reigning over that place. And, and instead, we go with the full confidence that God is the God of all nations, that he is the one and only God, and that he is the one and only judge, but that yet he is also the one and only Savior. And so we go and we proclaim the good news. We proclaim the victory that Christ has already won over all principalities and powers, including Dagon and the gods of all peoples. You see, 1 Samuel chapter 5 was written to show us the glory of God. He does not depend on any man to do his work. He will tear down all idols by the power of his sovereign hand. He will be the one and only God left standing in the final day. And all peoples will have to answer to him just as the Philistines had to answer to him. And all peoples will face the same wrath and condemnation that the Philistines face, but to a greater degree in hell, if not for the intervention of Jesus Christ and all who place their faith and trust in him. What a glorious privilege it is to be able to worship this sovereign, righteous, holy, and majestic God. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the good news of the gospel. But Father, I pray that you would guard us from taking it for granted Father, I pray that you would use this passage to remind us that if not for the intervening power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, we too would be falling down, worshiping false gods and idols, blinded to the absurdity and foolishness of what we're doing. And Father, I pray that you would continue to tear down the idols that we every day seek to place on equal parity with you, Father. I pray that you would tear them down, that you would destroy them. And Father, I pray that we would submit to you as the one and only God, the sovereign one over all nations and that we would remember that you are judge of all and that we would run for rescue to King Jesus, the Savior of all nations. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.